pray in Jesus' precious name. And then we ask for ourselves as we turn to your word now. We ask, Father, that by your spirit, you would open our hearts to receive it and you would shape our lives and our corporate life as a church in the light of what we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and starting at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I hope you'll keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the sermon on the back of the notice sheet as well. Uh, we are all familiar, I think, with the idea of working hard in the present in order to gain a reward in the future. Some of you labor at coursework, at revision, because you want to get good grades and you want exciting opportunities in the future. Some of you, not all, train hard in the gym uh, because you want to look good and to feel healthy. And lots of us spend huge portions of our adult life working because we want to provide for our family, our old age, and we want to enjoy nice things. We work hard and we know, we trust that something good is coming. And we know too that whenever we embark on a, a big project, it's helpful to have uh, clear and realistic expectations about how hard it's going to be, how much it's going to cost, how long it's going to take, or there is no way we'll see it through. I was watching a documentary about some people trying to climb Mount Everest a little while back. It was clear that some had no idea what they were undertaking. Unsurprisingly, they barely made it out of base camp uh, before the Sherpas were having to carry them home. Whatever it is that we're wanting to achieve or do in life, it's useful if someone can draw alongside and help set our expectations straight. Uh, it's a principle that Jesus adopted in his preaching about the Christian life. Um, you may know he said no one embarks on a building project without first working out how much it's going to cost, otherwise you run out of money halfway through, and all that you've erected is a half-built monument to your own folly. Similarly, he said no one should embark on being a disciple 
without first understanding the cost that is involved in being a Christian. Because Jesus is Lord, he has to rank at number one in my life. And anyone who's thinking about whether or not they want to be a Christian needs to to work through that and to think it through. Of course, the cost of not following Jesus is greater by far, but there is a cost to following him. And what's true of the Christian life in general is doubly true of Christian ministry and leadership. A friend of mine decided to become a, a minister in, or at least to apply for that sort of thing when he was leading on a summer camp once year, one year. And uh, he'd just spent a whole week running around uh, playing sport and having a great time doing fun activities. I think he led a couple of Bible studies. There was a great sense of camaraderie among the team. And he thought, this must be what being a minister is like. And no one in church will ever complain about anything. Everyone will just lay aside all of their personal differences. I'll run around playing sport and getting to tell people about Jesus. Um, within a year of starting his first job, he was on his knees. He was close to chucking in the towel. He hadn't played sport once. And uh, not everyone was quite as thrilled uh, as he'd hoped they might be. Uh, you'll remember, if you've been here the last few weeks, that 2 Timothy is in our Bibles. And because God wants not just ministers, but actually all Christians to know something of the, the pains as well as the pleasures and the privilege and the priorities of telling other people about Jesus, of serving him and engaging in the work of the gospel together. And you'll see that those themes are abundantly clear in our points once again. First, this morning, suffering in God's service is commanded. Let me read from verse 1 again and, and introduce us to both the task and the trials. Verse 1, you then, my child, says Paul to Timothy, be strengthened in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This task of teaching, training, it builds on what we saw last week. Up in verse 14 of chapter 1, do you remember Paul told Timothy he had to guard the good deposit of the gospel? Now he says, well, one of the, the key ways that you guard the gospel is a bit like someone running in a relay race with a baton, is by making sure that you hand it on to the one who comes after you. And verse 2, famously, as you glance down, talks about four generations of Christians so there's Paul, number one, who's faithfully passed on the gospel to Timothy, who's number two, and now he's to entrust that same gospel to the third generation who in turn will be able to teach it to the fourth. And when you think of just what we've seen already in the letter about how amazing Jesus is, it's obvious that Paul would be determined to preserve his message. No one but Jesus died for your sins. No one but Jesus destroyed death. No one but Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel so that sinners like us can share in God's heavenly joy and life and victory forevermore. But Paul had twigged that all it would take, humanly speaking, for the, the light of the gospel to be lost forever would be for one generation of Christians 
to fail to preserve and pass on the good news of Jesus to the next, and it would be lost forever. So he says, Timothy, make sure you teach the gospel personally, and not just that, make sure that you train others to teach the gospel after you. And so here's the point and why I labor it. Five years from now, you will be in a church. Many of you, it won't be this one. You'll have moved on from St. Andrews and guarantee someone will be, there'll be, some of the churches will be vacant. And uh, because you're bright and able and lovely, you will be asked to help them decide on who the new minister should be. Or you'll be in a church and they'll be having a, a vision day, trying to work out what their priorities should be. Here's my uh, encouragement, my charge to you. I want to ask you on that day to stand up and read out 2 Timothy 2.2 and to say to the assembled that one of the most important jobs of any minister, one of the most important parts of the vision of any local church is to train the next generation of gospel workers and encourage them to live in the light of that. That's your job. Here's what I don't want you to do. Please don't stand up and say, do you know, once I was in a church that had ministry trainees and ministers in training, they seemed to quite like it. So it's maybe one thing that we could do if we felt like it as one option. Because I'm hoping we will see here that it's not that teaching and training is just like our thing as a church, as though there's any number of things that we could be doing and we happen to pick on this because we wanted to find a niche in the market and be a bit different to others but that this is for all churches. The thing that's really striking about it for me is the way that Paul lays this charge on Timothy as the leader of this church in Ephesus, even though the ministry situation, as we've seen, in which Timothy found himself in Ephesus was so utterly desperate. People were abandoning the gospel left, right, and center. And he says, even then, when you're pretty much the only one left. When church life is that dysfunctional, make it your priority. So if I can put it like this, it's not an icing on the cake thing for some churches. It's more of a, what, what goes in eggs? Uh, but, uh, in cakes, is it eggs, butter, that sort of stuff? It's that kind of part of the cake rather than the icing on the top. And I, I say all this not to beat us up because I can honestly say that one of the one of the great joys of my life, actually, has been the way that over the last 10 years or so, this church family has so heartily embraced this priority from God's word. I thank God for your commitment. But if I fall under a bus tomorrow, and uh, you want to make me turn in my grave, or for that matter, if you want to make the Apostle Paul turn in, we won't be in a grave, we'll be with Jesus in paradise. It'll be better by far. I kind of go looking for buses some of the, the time. It would be so good. But all you would need to do is to say, well, training was Paul's thing, but he's gone now, so now we can do something different. And that'd do it. And let me say, if I managed to miss the bus, and you ever hear or see us as elders softening on this priority, then you have my full permission to, to beat us around the head with whichever... Bible is nearest to hand, or maybe just stand up and read out 2 Timothy 2.2 and hold us to this task. But if we're going to keep at it, we're going to need the right expectations, and that's our second sub-point here, the trials. 
Uh, I mentioned the guy who went into Christian ministry after a summer camp. Someone else I know went on a Christian conference. It was a big name speaker preaching to thousands. He'd been flown across the Atlantic business class or something. He'd dropped that in somewhere. And even though his teaching was pretty obviously underprepared and his jokes weren't all that funny, everyone was still kind of fawning over him and uh, lapping up every word and asking him to sign copies of his book. And my friend thought, well, that's what it must be like to be a, to be a minister. I'll turn up to church every Sunday and people will hang on my every word and they'll fawn over me and I'll, it'll be great. He ended up as a minister in a small town. Uh, he had to endure pretty early on some really hateful personal attacks from people within his own church family just because he was teaching the truths of the Bible. And he began to think, is this, is this really worth it? Clear expectations matter. And so it's interesting that, did you spot how the, the task that Timothy's given in verse 2 comes sandwiched between two mentions of hard work? So first in verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I, I take it the reason Paul has to say be strengthened is that he knows the task of guarding the gospel is going to leave Timothy feeling weak and in need of supernatural courage. And then again, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. To Timothy, suffering comes in a variety of forms. Some of it's, um, we, we've seen a bit of this already, haven't we? Some of it is persecution from outside of the church. But any church leader will tell you that their greatest sorrows come from people within the church, people who once friends who desert and now refuse to sit under their teaching. Paul had experienced both. He was in uh, prison for his preaching ministry. But you get the sense as you read the letter that what really hurt him was some griefs that he goes on to talk about in chapter 4. If you just flick the page, you'll see in verse 10, there's this... Uh, guy called Demas, who seems to have been a good friend of Paul, who deserted him because he loved this world so much. And then in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith, the metal worker, did him great harm. Ultimately, verse 16, when he was on trial for his faith, he says, no one came to stand by him, but everyone deserted him. And here back in chapter 2, Paul's saying to Timothy, his uh, dear child in the faith, this one that he loves so much. It's your turn. If you're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're, you're signing up to share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ. And I've been persuaded that he puts the sandwich of verses 1 to 3 there to say that it's not just the, the pains and trials of opposition and persecution that are going to make life hard, but the very task itself. I think that's why verse 2 comes between 1 and 3. The task of teaching and training itself will be a battle that drains and exhausts, quite apart from the way that anyone responds. And so even in good days, guarding the gospel is going to be like running a marathon and fighting a war and farming a field. It's going to be brutal. When you think of them, um, he says in verse 3 there, sharing suffering like a good soldier. When you think of the life of soldiers in the first century, 
don't know what images spring to mind. I, I don't personally picture them kind of going off and playing golf every afternoon or anything like that, working one day a week. I see images of hard graft, months away from home and loved ones, deprivation. And that's what Paul says it's like. And he presses the point home with, with three images. First in verse 4, back to the life of the soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So lots of things a civilian can do. They can mow their lawn or start a little business on the side or take up ballroom dancing. But in, in war, a soldier has none of those luxuries, do, do they? There's a, there's a singularity to their purpose. Their sole aim is to be a good soldier. And Paul says that's life of the gospel worker, constantly kind of shedding your life of the things that distract so that you can concentrate exclusively on pleasing your commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. Well, next, an athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Um, I told some of you before about a cross-country race I did once back in the days when I could run. Uh, the race started with a long uphill drag about a mile long. Uh, we all set off. We weren't thrilled when, as we got to the top of the hill, some little bloke jumped out of the bushes uh, and joined in the race, having just been sitting up there while we were slogging our guts uphill. Words were exchanged, uh, as you can imagine. But he was never going to win the prize. You don't win the prize unless you compete according to the rules. If the boxer doesn't make weight, they can't fight. If the sprinter takes steroids, well, they win gold. But eventually, someone finds out, and the truth comes out, and their names are wiped from the record books. And Paul says, do God's work in God's way. Or think of the farmer, verse 6. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So if the farmer decides to go on holiday instead of plowing the field, and if he decides to head off to the spa instead of planting the seed, there won't be a harvest. You have to work hard for months before you reap the rewards. And so with gospel work... One commentator says, put it all together, these three images speak of vigorous and undivided service that is rewarded. Vigorous, undivided service that is rewarded. And Paul's saying to Timothy, to the whole church in Ephesus, remember, not just to him, to us, I've done my bit. I'm at the end of my race. It's over to you now. Share in suffering for the gospel like good soldiers of Christ Jesus. It's sobering. Um, it requires us to check our expectations, obviously. person who goes to war thinking it will be a stroll in the park, or the child who thinks, oh, I want to be a farmer just because they think the idea of driving a tractor every now and then would be fun. They're going to be in for a rude awakening. And churches and elders and gospel workers and Bible study leaders and parents need to know that if we're to remain committed to this vital gospel work, it will take it out of us personally and corporately, and we will feel the cost in a whole range of ways across our church family. And that's why verse 1 says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
because we could never do it on our own. But the grace of Jesus is sufficient. So we depend on him, we pray, and we walk forward in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, the command, suffering in God's service is commanded, but God is nothing if not a, a fair employer. So alongside the task comes this great reward, our second briefer main heading, suffering in God's service is rewarded. Two rewards, and they make the pain worth it. First, salvation in Christ. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Love Paul's confidence. I'm in chains, he says, but I know that the spread of God's word can't be held back by something as trivial as a prison sentence, as if some chains made out of rusty iron could thwart the work of the one who made everyone and everything and who upholds the universe by the word of his mighty power. The Lord Jesus is building his church and not even the gates of hell can prevail against him. And so Paul says, because I know that the way God works to save people, here's the principle, the way God works to save is as his suffering servants spread his word, therefore I'm willing to endure everything. I'll suffer the chains, the beatings, the shame, because I know that God will work through them to save people. So easy to think of the, the trials and the struggles that come from being this kind of church as being pointless, but they're part and parcel of how God's work. It was through the suffering supremely, of course, of the Lord Jesus that God accomplished his great plan of salvation. And now today it's as his servants suffer in spreading his word that God advances his plan of salvation. Forgive me if I illustrate this um, personally to uh, just underline it a little bit. I, when I used to work for a church in London, one of my jobs was to run Christianity Explore courses regularly. Um, we run them here at times. Uh, two guys I spend a lot of time with, in, in particular one course, were Simon and Steve. One was a lawyer, the other worked in IT. They were both there to check out the Christian faith. And one reason they stick out in my memory is that the first time we met for a drink to chat, Steve brought along four sides of handwritten A4 sheets full of all of his questions and all of the objections that he had about the Christian faith. And he said, right, I've got a question. And he started at the top and we chatted for a bit. And then he said, right, I've got another one. And so we went on and we got about halfway down the sheet first time. We talked and talked for hours, days, really. People prayed wonderfully in God's kindness. His grace worked in their hearts, and a few weeks later, first Simon and then Steve became Christians. It's amazing to see them grow, get stuck in in their faith. Um, we moved up here, they stayed down there, we didn't really stay much in touch. A couple of years ago, they sent me a photograph of the two of them standing by the entrance to the, the Cornhill training course down in London, where they were both going to learn how to teach God's word to others, and it was like their kind of first day of school, and so they took a picture for their uh, parents and sent one to me very kindly. It's very moving to stop and reflect 
on the privilege of just being a tiny link, a tiny, tiny link in the chain with those guys. And realizing that not only had they obtained God's salvation personally, but now through them, many others were going to have the chance to obtain salvation as well. Isn't it wonderful? I sometimes look at the, the crowds on the streets here in St. Andrews, and I guess some of them are friends of people in this room, some we don't know at all. And I imagine how wonderful it would be for them to share in the eternal glory of Jesus in his new creation. And I ask myself, would a little bit of pain and suffering be worth it to give them the chance of being there on that day? I hope the answer is obvious. The second reward, though, if anything, is even bigger. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we died with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, sorry, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And notice the tenses. The start of verse 11 is talking back to our conversion. If or because it's saying our old life of self and sin died with Jesus when we first put our trust in Jesus, past tense. Because that's happened, therefore we know for sure that we will live with him in his new creation one day. It is a certainty. So verse 12, we know that if we endure now in the present, as we suffer in God's service as good soldiers of Christ, we can be sure we will reign with him, sharing in his rule and basking in his reflected glory. And so Timothy, think ahead to the finish line. And let the crown that awaits you motivate you to keep on in the present with the strength that God provides. But you do have to keep going, Timothy. So don't chuck in the towel. Don't settle for an easy life. Because, end of verse 12, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Deny there isn't the, the momentary blip of the, the timid Christian. It's the, the thing that Paul's friends had done turning away from Jesus decisively because they love the world too much, ashamed of the gospel, unwilling to share in any kind of suffering for Christ. And if someone rejects Jesus forever, he will one day reject us. But look at the assurance of verse 13, because there are times when we all stumble into cowardice, there are times when we are faithless. Just think of the Apostle Peter, but if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And the reason we've been thinking about the grace of Jesus all morning is that it is sufficient to cover our weakness, and it's sufficient to empower us in God's service. God has never once abandoned even one of his people he can't do it. It's, it's impossible for him to let his children out of his hand. And so as we return to him in repentance, he does restore us. So look to the finish line. As well as thinking about other people receiving salvation, think of yourself reigning with Christ forever. And let that future embolden our present. 
to be strong in his grace. Let me end with verse 7. Let me encourage you to take some time to think over what God has been saying this morning, trusting that he will give you insight and understanding into everything. At the end of the day, it is all about Jesus Christ. Remember him risen from the dead. It's the grace of Jesus that first saved us. It's the grace of Jesus that strengthens us. And so as we come to him again, I hope we're, we're blown away by the, the privilege that God might work through us to bring his glorious salvation to others. And through those we train as a church and send out in his service. We need to be realistic about the cost. We need to trust in the strength of his grace. And we need to remember that a crown of glory awaits. And we need to say, Lord, here we are. Send us in the power of your spirit. Use us. Enable us to live and work to your praise and glory, personally and together. Let me pray. And so, our Father, we do want to praise you once again for the grace of the Lord Jesus that first saved us and that strengthens us. We want to thank you for this promise that because we've died with the Lord Jesus, we know that we will live with him and that if we endure, we will reign with him. We thank you. And we thank you too, therefore, for those who are willing to suffer in order that we might hear the good news of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to be strengthened by the grace in such a way that we too will share in suffering as good soldiers of Christ. Help us to be realistic about the cost. Help us to keep going. And we pray that it would be our unshaking priority as a church family to engage in this gospel ministry in our town and to train others so that they may take the gospel all around the world and uh, that others might obtain salvation in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.